Also, really quick before we get started, I wanted to thank everyone checking out the podcast. You know, the other day, within like two and a half days, I had 10,000 downloads. I wanted to thank each and every one of you. There's tons of podcasts out there. And so I hope I'm providing entertainment, some education, some inspiration. So check out my Instagram, just tag two friends in that specific post. And I'll be giving away two copies of my book, uh, six wraps and two sticker packs to just 10 random friends as a thank you. So just really appreciate you guys. Uh, my name is Addie Bracey. I am a professional trail and ultra runner for Nike Trail, um, a certified mental performance consultant and recent author of uh, Mental Training for Ultra Running. And welcome to the Training for Ultra podcast. If we could just free ourselves of our perceived limitations and tap into our internal fire, the possibilities are endless. I'll tell you about it when it happened in the race, but to be honest with you, it happened even before the race. It happened in the training. Great cause. Oh, thank you. I respect that, man. So you keep doing what you do, it, man. Keep inspiring. For all you kids out there, stay safe and stay strong. Hey, everyone. It's the Training for Ultra podcast. Scott Jurek here. I was physically totally wrecked. I, I had nothing left. I figured I might as well move as quickly as possible towards the finish line if I was going to be moving towards it anyways. How do you even do that? If I could, you know, finish a 50 miler, I could probably run across the country. 100 miles is not that far. Welcome to episode 191 of the Training for Ultra podcast. My name's Rob. I also go by Training for Ultra. We have a great episode. We're talking to Addie Bracy. She's not only just a super talented runner and coach, but super talented writer. She writes for Trail Runner Magazine. And she just wrote a brand new book, which I can't wait to check out. Uh, but she's a community builder and just super insightful. Like, I, I guarantee you there'll be parts of this podcast where you will think. And uh, she really brings a great perspective. And I, I think you'll enjoy this episode. So thanks for checking it out. Eddie, it's awesome to have you back on the podcast we talked so long ago. It was way too long ago, especially with you living in Boulder. But I'm just really happy for everything taking place within your life right now. And welcome back to the podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's been it's been a few years, so excited to chat with you again. A lot's happened since then. Oh my gosh. I mean, I wish <laughs> I had time to just check in with you every week. I mean, especially with a lot of what you're doing you're now writing, I think, a column, right, for Trail Runner Magazine? Trail I Running? do, yeah. I, uh, yep, Trail Runner Magazine um, online. I do a, a, a column a couple times a month, um, kind of focused primarily on, yeah, sports psychology and, and mental performance training. I mean, it's all gold. And, and you're also the author of a new book, which I can't wait to talk to you about. Um, I'm a big fan of authors of all books. I mean, it's just... It's where I got personally a ton of inspiration and motivation when I first started, and I can't try to support authors more than I do now. So can't wait to to touch on that. Um, but you're also like a professional runner too. You do this running thing, um, and you've had a heck of a year. I wanted to start off, you know, hearing more about how was 2021 for you. It's not over, obviously, but 
you had some ups and downs and I mean, tell me how you came out of 2020, which was just a write-off year in a lot of cases. And I want to hear how you leveraged that into 2021. Yeah. And, you know, it was kind of dichotomous last year and a half in terms of my own training and racing. I, I would consider myself a pretty consistent athlete. You know, I, I, at least until as of recently, haven't necessarily been at the top of the podium for a lot of races, but, but I'm usually kind of right there in the top three and the last two years, that's not been the case. It's been maybe one of the first kind of lows I've had in the sport. So 2020, uh, you know, I was actually fortunate. I had my first real serious injury in a long time and I was sidelined for several months. So, um, I was maybe one of few people that was benefiting from some of the races being canceled. And then coming into 2021, I raced a handful of times. Um, I raced at black Canyon, um, did like a rim to rim to rim effort, um, as kind of a race type thing. And then, and then Western States and, you know, neither of those races went well at all. Um, but was able to kind of round out the summer with, uh, winning run rabbit run last weekend and having a pretty good day uh, at a local hundred K here in Colorado, uh, never summer. So yeah, some ups and downs is, is a good way to put it and, um, feel like I'm back on track now, but there was, there was definitely a, a low period of maybe really not being able to figure out what was going on and, not having the performances that I felt like I had trained for. Tell me more about Western States this year, because I, I know you haven't had the opportunity to really um, talk to many people about it, but I, I do really like hearing about the ones that didn't go well. And then I love hearing about the good ones too, but I mean, tell me more about what, what you think transpired there. I think it was just kind of a, the, a perfect storm of things. Um, some was just lack of logistical preparation. I did not do my research on the changes they were making uh, to aid stations due to COVID. I didn't know that they weren't doing sponge baths and, and that kind of thing. So um, my crew didn't have stuff for me at the first stop, which was my fault. Um, so logistically didn't prepare as well as I should have. Um, obviously, it was an insanely hot day and that kind of mistake really adds up. So ultimately it was, um, my reaction to the heat and getting pretty close to heat exhaustion, heat stroke territory to the, to the point where I knew I, I couldn't keep going on. But, um, in terms of my own approach and, and something that I've learned and trained changed drastically from Western States to, to run rabbit run was I've noticed that in hundreds, um, I, I have at times had maybe like a kind of a sense of urgency or was maybe trying to force the race to happen. And it was actually something that Nick Clark, he's the race director of a lot of races here in, in Colorado, but um, never summer. And obviously like an amazing ultra runner himself back in the day uh, said to me after never summer, you know, he said, you gotta, you gotta change what you're doing. Your, your approach to hundreds isn't working for you. You need to like, let the race come to you. And it really stuck with me for some reason. Um, and, and going into run rabbit run was just my mindset was totally different in terms of not trying to like rush through everything, not trying to have this super competitive mentality that was, you know, wasting no time, super efficient to the point where at Western States, I was really neglecting a lot of serious things that led to the heat being more of a problem for me than other people because I wasn't taking care of things. Um, so seeing my crew, you know, seeing a difference between me and the two races, I think my biggest thing that I figured out was just kind of that letting the course come to me, responding to the things that were coming, you know, making adjustments. If I had a segment where I felt tired, taking my time at aid stations, really kind of assessing what I needed and making it more about the little things rather than just getting so focused on like the running and racing part, which, which really wasn't working for me before. That is 
Beautiful. I mean, if you haven't written an article titled that, I mean, <laughs> that is absolutely amazing. Um, and Nick Clark, I can't, I can't speak more highly of someone in terms of not only an excellent runner, but just an awesome, talented race director, community builder, just the nicest guy. Um, he puts on quad rock also and a bunch mm -hmm. of other races here locally. And I think the last time we talked to you, you had just done Never Summer 100K for the first time, I want to say. Um, but that is that is such like next level thinking that you're able to synthesize down exactly the changes you you made. And the the major change was more mental than physical. Would you say like your physical training, did that change much or was it just that tactical change for during the race no my, my physical training didn't change really at all I, I still know for a fact that I was in incredible shape uh, going into western states like truly felt like I had a, a shot to be you know up up in the top four or five physically um, but it it just highlights how important the little things are they're, they're not little things and you know I maybe even something we talked about the first time we chatted a few years ago is that has been something I've had to learn about ultra running in general is just, you know, being a track and marathoner for so many more years than, than anybody else that I'm racing against. You know, I just have this like efficiency, you got to be getting after it the whole time, you know, don't waste any time kind of tough it through mentality. And it, it doesn't work for a hundred miles. It works until it doesn't. Um, so you're right. You had to have, kind of have him say that to me in a way that I could understand it and then try to execute that. And then, you know, quite possibly have the, the, I mean, definitely have the best hundred I've ever had. Um, just, just in a shift in the mental approach was, was pretty crazy. It kind of lets you, um, let the physical work, uh, show up when you ha have that different psychological approach and aren't trying to like force anything and are kind of engaging and participating in the day rather than just trying to like force an outcome to happen, which is what it felt like before. I definitely felt kind of a sense of urgency and anxiety in the whole race. Um, whereas this past time, I, f I felt very relaxed and just kind of curious at what was coming and was ready to handle whatever happened and um, just treated that as part of the race rather than kind of freaking out about it like I have in the past. I mean, I was I was watching you know, states like everyone else and watching that awesome coverage on, I think it was YouTube. And I think you were hanging in like the top five, top 10 for quite some time. And I don't want to say just kind of took that position for granted but i thought you had things under control like i mean it, it seemed like so I, I guess i didn't realize just from watching you know your position and everything else and those little tiny clip updates that you were you were running uncomfortably and you were trying to force it like you said i mean explain what was going through your head kind of at leading up to having to drop Western States. I mean, that race is just the Super Bowl of ultra running. It's so insane. Um, and it's very difficult to get into, even if you're um, someone of your caliber. I mean, what's going through your head? Uh, yeah, I mean, there was in my head no scenario where I was dropping out. <laughs> I've never dropped out of a race before. Um, I've never felt like I was in a place that I needed to. So that wasn't even something on my radar going in, um, or, you know, early on when it was cooler and, 
Um, I, I, I like the climbing. So a lot of the climbing comes in the first half of the race. Um, I, I was feeling one, I was feeling great. You know, I was sitting in second and third, um, most of the first 25, 30 miles. I think we were through, uh, 26, 27 miles under course record pace. I, you know, I felt great. And then even when things started to derail, um, I still think I was kind of maintaining, I don't know, like sixth or seventh place, even when I was, could tell things were pretty bad, but um, you know, being someone that had never dropped from a race before, I'd always been kind of curious of like, how do you know, how do you know when it's time? Like, how do you know when that's something that you have to do? And I think I could tell pretty, pretty early. Um, I think when I hit Michigan bluff, I, I already knew it was pretty bad. And I sat, had, I sat down in, in my crew tent for 10 or 15 minutes, which I don't think I've ever done. Um, and I just, I just felt like, no, I couldn't cool off. Like it was like, I could not cool off. I was incredibly uncomfortable um, just felt like no matter what I did, I couldn't get my body temperature to go down. So I, I slogged, you know, from there to Forest Hill. Um, and when I got there, uh, they had called a medical person over and he, he said, you need to come into the medical tent you're not doing great. And even then I thought, I thought that I could still get out there and finish. I think I sat in the medical tent for over an hour and was still in the top 10. Um, but it, it became pretty clear that continuing wasn't going to be an option. I think if I felt like I could have even just finished the race and, and, and not perform the way I thought, I think I would have tried, but, um, you know, I've never been in that position before where I knew that there was no way my body could keep going. So in some ways it made the, the, the decision to drop easier because it was just, it was made for me in some ways, but the tough pill to swallow is that I got myself in that situation. You know, I could have planned better and executed better, maybe taken it easy earlier, you know, had, cooling strategies that were better than having none, which is what I had, you know, carry an extra water bottle. So, um, just things that really compiled and, you know, accumulated into a really big issue. So I would say early on, I didn't, I felt great. You know, it wasn't that I felt could art, you know, sometimes you can just tell early miles that it's not going to be a good day. And I felt the opposite. I felt so good. Um, but I think as soon as it started to go South and seems like nothing that I did pulled me out of it at all. Like nothing was making a difference. Um, and hours were passing. I, I think it became obvious that it was a pretty dire situation. I mean, that's the worst is like when you have a good day and then for whatever reason, things go that far South, like, uh, uh, cause you really were crushing the heck out of it, especially at that pace. That's just unbelievable that you're sitting in a, a medic tent for an hour and you're still in the top 10. I mean, you were, you were crushing. And I really like the fact that you take ownership in that DNF. Like you are not placing blame on anyone or anything other than the decisions you made and, and maybe the lack of, of just researching certain aspects, which are easy in retrospect to, to pinpoint, obviously. Um, I think, I mean, would you say that that helped like you taking the blame on yourself and knowing I need to make these changes and then having Nick, Nick make those comments. I mean, are those all leading up to never summer being such a great race? Because most people probably just see that and think, oh, that was a pretty good race. But I mean, I don't. Under 24 hours at that race, I think is just crazy hard. Um, I'm trying to think myself. I was under 20 hours is hard uh, for middle middle of the pack type runners. But 
what you threw down there was was a really solid effort. Um, are the two connected? You accepting the uh, the blame, and then obviously Nick's comment really hit home. And I just want to hear how you applied those to Never Summer, one of my favorite races in the world. Yeah, totally. And in fact, um, Never Summer, I decided to do. For, for a number of reasons, but one of the reasons I, I decided to do solo, I didn't, I just came by myself. I didn't bring a crew. I didn't bring a pacer. And one of the reasons I wanted to do that was to kind of put myself in a position to have to be more in tune with what I needed. You know, I had drop bags at aid stations and stuff. And, uh, I, I wanted to put myself in a situation where I had to like kind of interpret my needs better. Um, because that's, yeah, I, I fully take the blame at Western States. I think that the, the scenario I got myself into was 100% avoidable, which is why, you know, the women that crushed that day and, and, and still maintained that hot pace that we were on, you know, had some of the fastest times in history, um, were because they planned better and they took time to address needs early on rather than, you know, what I did, which was just kind of blowing through aid stations. So yeah, I, I took that into never summer and, and wanted to treat it more as like a full experience, not totally focused on the running part. Um, and it, and it still went really well and I felt better and, you know, was, was kind of gained some empowerment and, um, confidence from knowing that I could be self-reliant and knowing that I could kind of take care of my needs. Um, and seeing how well that went and how much better I felt and how I was able to do, you know, 12 hours out there by myself uh, and taking care of myself gave me a lot of confidence going into run rabbit run. And then I kind of just carried that approach forward. But um, yeah, a mixture of failing miserably, you know, failing more than I have. Like, that's the biggest failure I've had in the sport yet. I would say Western States um, and, and just using that as a chance to learn and recognize that it wasn't just a bad race. It was a poorly executed race. Uh, and if I can look at it that way, then it gives me things to take forward. And yeah, it was really cool to have evidence right away of, if you're willing to learn and willing to like make changes, then you can see the results pretty quickly. And, and that was, you know, I was fortunate in that sense to to be able to have another chance to kind of take those lessons forward and have a different experience and, and cap off 2021 having the race that I've trained for, you know, the whole summer um, and spring and, and wish that I could have executed at Western States, but I didn't and was still excited that I had the opportunity to show up and have, you know, what I think was a really great day last weekend and, and kind of put some of that hard work um, out there. My gosh, you've matured as a trail runner and ultra runner. That, that is just amazing. And I, I can't speak like higher of your, your whole attitude on like, I did this to myself. I need to reevaluate things and I'm going to go out there without any crew, any pacers. And I'm reliant on me because I, I took that for granted at the last race. And it was, kind of a shit show. Now I'm going to reevaluate and kind of recalibrate my running and being able to, to throw down that time on that course. I think you were fourth overall, smaller field, but still, um, winning that race and you got a collection of axes. That's for sure. If, if that's what <laughs> he still gives out at those yeah. races. Um, that's unbelievable. And, and so I mean, did your pace change? Did your like internal governor change when you knew you were out in this never summer mountains by yourself on North Diamond Peak or whatever that crazy climb's called? 
Not, not really. And, and I will say um, the day before there was really bad storms. So they actually did reroute the course. We didn't go up North diamond. Oh. Um, we, we skipped two of the high country sections They changed the course. So it ended up being actually longer. The course was longer. I think it was like 64 miles or, or more, um, but a little bit, a little bit less vert. So it was different than the course I had done previously. So I, I don't know if people knew that but because the time I ran was, was pretty fast. And I would say this course was a little bit a little bit easier. Easier is a, not the right word because nothing up there is easy, but, um, but, but no, honestly, I think that I still had so much confidence in my training and preparation. And it, I mean, you're right. There is like a maturity that's uh, required to accept responsibility for, for bad races. But at the same time, like, man, I would rather accept responsibility because then it's suggesting there's something I can do about it versus just chalking it up to a bad day. And so me, be, me being able to accept the responsibility and recognize what went wrong also allowed me to kind of maintain the confidence that that I had trained you know my ass off all summer and, and spring and that I was in shape and so um, no I, I think I went out there running hard from the gun and knew that I you know had all these physical reserves that that hadn't been um, and and that's the thing too is you know Western states wasn't that long before ever summer I think it was like four or five weeks um, but I had only gone a hundred k and so. I also wanted to kind of take advantage of the fact that I didn't have the recovery period that I normally would have after Western States. And, um, I, I would say I was excited. I was excited to go out there and run hard and, um, surprisingly confident in my ability to, to handle it on my own. So having no one there, I don't, I don't think that impacted my, my race strategy or, um, gave me any kind of reservations at all. And so, it seems like you were able to leverage that confidence into Run Rabbit Run. I mean, tell me more about, you know, day leading into that race and kind of what were what were race conditions like? I mean, were you aware of, of that course? Like had you had you trained on that course at all or, or just share kind of some background leading into Run Rabbit Run? Yeah. Um, I was able to go out maybe, I want to say three weeks before the race and cover most of the course, um, with the way that they do the course, I did two long days over a weekend. I think I did like 27 miles one day and 32 miles the next day. So kind of made it my biggest training weekend. Um, and that allowed me to cover the majority of the course. There was only a couple segments that I didn't see. So I did have the advantage of, um, knowing, you know, knowing what I was up against, knowing what the terrain was like, knowing what the vert was like. Um, and never summer surprisingly is very comparable. So that, you know, I, and I knew that, so that was like a great training, uh, training race, I guess, and kind of gave me some confidence there. And, and, you know, I'm, I'm still somewhat new. I say new, I've been in it for a while, but for, for the longer, at least the hundreds, you know, this is my fourth one. And I'm realizing in my, in my head I kind of always thought I would be better at a Western States type course. You know, I've, I've run fast 10 Ks. I've run fast marathons, probably have at least probably have some of the fastest PRs in those senses on the starting line. But what I'm actually realizing is the times I've put myself in races like never summer and run rabbit run that are all high elevation, like lots of vert. I actually, I actually do better. And I'm, I think part of it too, is me just kind of starting to recognize maybe what kind of courses are suited to me. Um, and I think that those kinds of courses are, so I think I did have confidence in that. Like I knew from never summer that that was the case. I had a great race there as my first hundred K, you know, three or four years ago and was able to kind of come back and I think have a better day this, this year. And so 
getting continuous confirmation that I do well in the high country that I do well on technical courses made me, um, well, at run rabbit's not that technical, but just, you know, lots of just different, like Rocky mountain type races and not Western States, California type races. Um, I had confidence in that. I felt like it was a course that was suited for me. I knew the course, but that's not to say that I didn't have a heck of a lot of anxiety about, um, no pacers about running through the night. I had never run through the night before. So that was, you know, a detail about run rabbit run that, that kind of scared me. So there was things I was confident about in it, but there was also some unknowns that I hadn't experienced before that I definitely had not concern over, but just was eh, a little nervous about, or at least aware of that they were going to be situations I hadn't been in before. And so to cross over into like the mental training side of things, how, how did you approach running through the night? Like in the lead up, I mean, how, how did you mentally approach, um, the fear or or whatever it might be, just the unknown of, of that situation? Um, I think I just accepted it. You know, I, I didn't do a single night run. I don't, I don't run at night. So I have literally had no experience at it. Anytime that I have run in the dark, um, you know, maybe at the end of hundreds, I've had someone with me and it's only been for a few hours. I think I'd only run maybe the latest I've ever finished is like 1am or something. So nothing like what I was going to be facing there. I was scared. And I, you know, like, will you admit that I was afraid of wildlife? I was afraid of my ability to keep pushing myself in a situation like that, where it's just dark and cold and you're tired and there's no one with you. I, I hadn't pulled an all nighter since final exams in college, you know, 10 years ago, literally <laughs> I, I didn't, I like thought back. I was like, when was the last time I stayed up all night? Um, so it was, you know, 10, 12 years ago. So I, I had a lot of fears, you know, am I going to be sleepy? Like, how am I going to handle this? Um, and there were periods where I felt each of those emotions, but I think more than anything, uh, I, I try to, I try to embrace it. You know, I've been doing this sport in some version for over 20 years and there's not many chances I get anymore to do first, you know, like first, first, uh, attempt at a distance, first attempt at like some kind of, uh, circumstance in a race that's different than I have before. I, I don't get that often anymore, you know, maybe once every few years. And so, I tried to look at it like that. Like, this is cool that 20 plus years into the sport, I'm still finding new ways to challenge myself that I never have. And, um, I'm thankful for that. That doesn't mean that it wasn't, I wasn't scared. I, I was having nightmares about it, uh, like two weeks before, like that my headlamp died, which happened, which was great that I had thought about it because my headlamp did die. Um, so yeah, I think it's, it's okay to have fears and it's okay to think about them. But what I like to say is like, if you're thinking about something you're afraid of or concerned about something and there's no kind of like action attached to that, then, then it's not really helpful. So I usually had some kind of, you know, when I was thinking about it, some kind of plan, you know, okay, well, I'll bring my phone and, and listen to some music out loud. If I'm feeling like I'm by myself and I haven't seen anybody for a while and I'm scared of animals or, um, you know, no, whatever it was just like really preparing myself for how it was going to feel. And then more than anything, accepting that it was okay, that it was going to feel scary. And that's not something I needed to try and force away. I mean, it was probably light on the one, one section that freaked me out on that course. Um, although you start at noon as a hare. So I wonder, um, <laughs> I'm going to go down a rabbit hole on that one. Um, how did the race start for you? Cause you go up a stupid, steep climb it's almost like silver rush 50 like you're just going up 
Dutch Henry Hill. Like you're going up a ski, like a ski mountain, like uh, that has an uncomfortable grade. And that's just how you start. I mean, tell me about the first few miles of Run Rabbit Run. I got to hear some of the details. Yeah, I mean, you're right. You, you're literally running up the side of a ski slope. Um, so I knew that I had done the course, you know, previously, and I, I was kind of stoked for it because I was like, I'm just going to hike it out. Like, I don't need to run even one step of the first few miles of this race. Um, so there, there was a couple women that went out and I didn't necessarily plan to like lead, you know, pretty much line to line. There was a couple women in front of me, um, but things just happened where they would stop pull off the trail to fix their gear or do something. And then all of a sudden, you know, six miles into the race, I kind of found myself in the front and, um, didn't necessarily plan it that way. But, um, but I, I liked the start. I think it kind of took away the urge to just kind of be out like, blasting from the gun. <clears throat> it kind of keeps you in check early on. Um, you get to do some hiking and I think the whole course is kind of that way. It's really broken up nicely, I think, so that it's like long climbs and long downhills. And as soon as you're kind of done and over climbing, you know, there's a long downhill. Or as soon as you're kind of done uh, going down a long downhill, there's a climb coming up. So I, I actually really loved the course and how it was broken up. It's it's challenging. Um, but I think that it's kind of always changing. Uh, and it, it keeps it engaging in that sense. I agree. I mean, some <laughs> some people don't like that course and they claim it's like contrived, whatever. Um, so other people love it. I mean, it's... I just, I, I found it fascinating. I found it very challenging and it's, I mean, it's just, it's unique for sure. I mean, so you found the lead early. Are you able to see your competition like as you're running or like, have you hit any out and back sections where you're able to tell like where you are relative to, um, your competitors? Yeah. You, so you hit, uh, that fish Creek falls section, you know, where you go down the really long downhill. I think you hit the end, the aid station there around 18 miles, and then you flip around and come back the same direction. So you get a little bit of beta there. You can see how far behind people are, but at that point we hadn't spread out that much. You know, there was probably two or three women just within a couple minutes of me. So it's not super useful information. And then, and then that's kind of it, you know, it's, you're out there on your own, it gets dark. Yeah. They start the, um, the first race early, obviously. And then at, at 8am, the normal race, and then the hairs at noon. And so you're, so you're surrounded by people, but you don't know who's in your race and who's in the other race. And it is a little bit nerve wracking in that sense, because you might, and, and it got dark pretty early, you know, it's it started at noon and around six thirty or so we're pulling our headlamps out. So at that point you see headlamps behind you, but you don't know who's they are or which race they're in. So that part was tough. Um, and then you come down into that Olympian hall aid station around 50 miles and you do kind of a, a 15 mile loop and come back through. And so there you also can get a little information from your crew based on when, uh, the women behind you came through after you left. And so those are the only two points I really, I really had information. Um, and I, and I didn't have at least what I felt was a substantial lead. Um, Alyssa St. Laurent, a really great Canadian runner was, within 20 minutes of me, most of the race, uh, until the end. So I, I truly never felt like I had it in the bag until I was coming down the last downhill, you know, to the finish line. Yeah. It, they've redone the course since I did it. Um, but that, it sounds like a really great setup. I mean, those trails are so plush going down, uh, to fish Creek and then 
that that out out and back kind of lollipop loop um was it used to be super hot so you hit it was it nighttime um coming out of olympian yeah yep so and and it was a warm day so i'm i'm assuming that the the tortoises had you know maybe a more challenging day in some ways yeah we started at noon so it was hot when we started but this time of year you know a couple hours or 4 30 it's it's starting to kind of cool off and so um i i never really felt hot um but yeah it, it is a nice setup i think crewing wise it's probably like the easiest race to crew because there's only <laughs> three crew stations and they're all close to each other the downside of that is the last time you see your crew is around 71 72 miles and you don't see them for the next 30 which is like the longest 30 you know in the middle of the night so it's tough it's a tough long road home the last time you see them but um yeah, I mean, it's a challenging race and that's the way that it's supposed to be. And I, I liked it. You know, there was definitely some things I had to learn and address for the first time. And yeah, to not have a pacer jump in with you is is not easy. And that's the first time I've ever done that. But um, no, I, I, I loved the race. I I thought it was kind of, I don't know, masochist how they set up the, the hares race the way that they do. But now that I've done it, I'm like, yeah, it's cool. Like it's hard and you know, let's make it even a little bit harder. And I, I liked the experience and it was fun to, to challenge myself in that way. Uh, so, I mean, taking Nick's advice to heart, how are you letting the race come to you, especially when it gets dark and you've never run through the night? Tell me more about that. Yeah, um, a lot of it was walking early. You know, I was hiking things out early. I think in previous hundreds, I've kind of taken the approach of, uh, everybody's going to blow up at the end. That's just how, what a hundred feels like. So just keep cruising while you're feeling good and then kind of try to do damage control, you know, at the end. And and maybe that works for some people, but what I realized for myself actually is I actually ran like incredibly consistently. Um, and I was putting time, you know, I was you know, maybe 20 minutes ahead of the next woman for the first 60 miles or so. But then I ended up at one point I had over 50 minutes, uh, and then I started puking and lost a little bit of time. And I think it ended up being about 37, 38 minutes. But, but what I noticed, um, was that I, I was just able to stay consistent when my approach wasn't to like crush it early on. You know, there was times early on when I was hiking things that I normally would have forced myself to run in the past. Um, I was taking more time I was, I was stopping at more aid stations. I wouldn't say I was taking more time, but I was stopping at every aid station and grabbing some solid food. Um, when my stomach started to feel off, I didn't just push through it. I would kind of start walking for a minute and kind of assess like, okay, maybe I need to get something solid in or try and figure out what the problem was. So I think it, I took his advice to heart in the sense of not just trying to push through everything and instead kind of responding to what was happening um, earlier than I normally would have. And, and what I found is like, you know, the, it's downhill and it's on, you know, a fire road, but I was running seven thirties at the end of that race. And it wouldn't have mattered if I was on like it, the previous hundreds I'd done, it wouldn't have mattered how fast of a surface I was on. I was walking. And so it was really cool to see like, wow, when I, when I do damage, when I don't approach it as like crush it and then do damage control and instead try and just like maintain a consistent effort, I pretty much ran consistently the whole day to the point where I was passing men, you know, tons of guys at the end. Um, and it was cool to see that and cool to see like, wow, I can actually feel really good at the end of a hundred, which in my head, I honestly never thought was possible, nor did I think it was like the goal. So yeah, it's just having that conservative approach before you need to, and then things can kind of 
elongate and you can feel good for a heck of a lot longer rather than trying to just go out and absolutely crush everything and then see if you can just hold on for dear life at the end, which is not a fun way to run a hundred and has not been successful in my, in my experience either. So yeah, just that, that approach changed the game for me. And I'm really excited to see what I can do with that now. I'm Ethan Wayne, director of the John Wayne Cancer Foundation. And I'm Molly, the race director for the John Wayne Grit Series. My father, John Wayne, asked my family and I to use his name to help find a cure for cancer. So we started the Grit Series. It's a series of 5Ks, 10Ks, and half marathons that take place in the most beautiful and rugged landscapes across the Southwest, including places where John Wayne shot some of his most famous movies. That's right. And all the race proceeds go towards cancer research and prevention programs. We're asking you to join us and bring your courage, strength, and grit to the fight against cancer. For more information on a race near you, visit us at johnwayne.org. That's johnwayne.org. Stay dusty. Big thank you to Exoskin. So they have a new t-shirt. It's 100% cotton, two colors, black and neon green with a white logo on the front. And a hashtag show us your skin and at Exoskin USA on the back. They are $26.50 each without a discount available, but still just really appreciate their support. So check out the show links um, for that link to Exoskin. Also, big thank you to Tannery Outdoors. If you're interested, use uh, the promo code Ultra10 for 10% off. But this is just a great company. You know, it's designed for runners by runners. Uh, The founder is an ultra runner. And it's an all-natural mineral-based product, which in this era of of sunscreen recalls and everything taking place there, it's just comforting knowing um, this is a a good, honest company. And um, it, it cares about the ultra running community. It cares about the trails and in the national parks and state parks, I think 1% of their sales goes back into the park systems. And they they definitely support, you know, some really great ultra runners and ultra running podcasts. I mean, what flagged this race is like super standout to me. And it's hard to compare historically to other performances is that, I mean, you were I like five minutes roughly off a course record that, you know, there's been some fairly good female runners uh, that have set those like Michelle Yates and your time was better than um, Courtney DeWalter, who, I mean, granted one of the times she uh, could not see for part of the race, but she's done it several times. So you just threw down, you know, the second best time ever, ever, uh, Effort done at that race. I mean, that was just like mind blowing. And the fact that you were stopping to puke at one point during the race, I mean, that's it says a lot that you ran an incredibly good good race physically, but then mentally you just nailed it and really executed. I mean, was there any part of that race that you could have done much better? Yeah, and you know it's interesting that like I almost took my focus too much away from like I if I had known I was that close to the course record I know that I could have gotten it but I wasn't I wasn't looking at my I wasn't looking at my watch and 
that was a change I wanted to make because in the past that had been what had made me feel too urgent. And so, yeah, I think maybe I took it a little bit too far and wish I would have known how fast I was running. Um, cause I, I think I could have made up some time. Um, I would say, I would say the last 20 miles, I got a little bit complacent. I think that I knew at that point, I think I, I, I didn't, I didn't know how far back the next woman was, but I knew I was moving pretty well. So I kind of, I, I knew that there was really no way she was going to catch me. Um, even when I was stopping to puke, um, I was still, you know, hitting like 13 minute miles uphill with puke breaks. So I, I felt like I, I got a little bit complacent and felt like I was secure in the position enough to maybe not take any risks. Like it was, I wasn't sure that she wasn't going to come up on me, but I felt like I needed to save some juice just in case. And so I wasn't willing to like maybe take a risk the last 20 miles and really push to see what kind of time I could throw down because I didn't know if it was worth the risk of not knowing where the girl was behind me. So I, if that makes sense. Um, so I, I definitely think I could have made up some time there. Um, but for the most part, I, I was pretty efficient and moving pretty well all day. So at the same time, I think I could run five, six, seven, eight minutes faster, 10 minutes faster, but it's not like there's a point that really stands out of like, here's where you really screwed up. You know, I, I really just had a good day and I never had a period where I wasn't moving well and, you know, it felt really awesome to be passing you know, elite men, uh, at mile, mile 75 and mile 80, like that felt really good. Um, uh, maybe if anything, I'm not a great nighttime runner. I don't do it ever. And I, I think you said, have you, have you run the course? I think you said you had Yeah. maybe. Yeah. So it's, you know, how it's really dusty there. Like the trails are really, and that's kind of a problem. That's how Courtney had the, the eyesight problems. That's what I ended think. my race. Yeah. It's, it's really bad. And like, you know, that it's bad because people talk about it so much. And I brought eye drops. And in fact, my issue was I was coughing up that's, dirt for like two days after that what my problem was the cars would yeah. drive past on a section oh, so bad. and it kicked up dust it was mile 80 for me uh on a big climb up i don't yep. i don't know where that is relative to how the course has been reworked but okay yeah back on one of those like four by i was putting my probably. buff over my face it was <clears throat> it was hot dusty and just kind of miserable it, it is. And it, in, in the dark with headlamps, it's very hard to see. It almost is like running in fog. Yeah. Um, so I don't know really what the work around for that is, but I, I definitely could have made up time um, if I had been more accustomed to running in the dark. Oh, actually, this is definitely where I could have made up time. I So going on, on to the section after you pass through Olympian Hall the first time, there's like that 15 mile, 12 to 15 mile loop up on like the mountain biking courses. And mm-hmm. I had grabbed a headlamp uh, a, a fresh headlamp for my crew. And I was starting to get a little bit tired. It was probably around 10 PM. So I, I hadn't planned to grab my phone to listen to music until coming back through the second time, but I was getting kind of sleepy. And so I was like, you know, I'm going to take my phone and, and listen to some music, which thank God I did because I got maybe four or five miles into that segment and my headlamp completely died. Um, like completely died. It was pitch black out there. And Luckily I had my phone. So I ran, I think eight miles, most of it down, downhill, um, with my iPhone, which was my iPhone light, which is not like, that is not not ideal for running form. (laughs) No. And so I, I passed through an aid station and the guy there was like, you cannot go without a headlamp, like take mine. And I was just worried. I was like, I don't think I can do that. Like I'm trying to win this race, but I think that might be me getting some kind of aid. Yeah. Um, I don't feel, I don't feel comfortable with it. And he, he was kind of upset. He was like, no, it's, it's safety. Like you need to have a headlamp. And so I, a long story short, I did not take it, but it was just running with my iPhone you flashlight. Which out batteries. Maybe. I don't know what that rule is. Was, That's a good question. Actually. Yeah. yeah. 
It oh. is. It was rechargeable. So I did, he had batteries and I was like, well, it doesn't take batteries. So, um, so it was a nice flowy, like six, seven mile downhill that you could kind of rip if you were, you know, it's yeah. not technical if you had a nice headlamp, but I, I didn't. And so I definitely probably lost 15 minutes there. Cause I was being so careful. Cause I, I couldn't see my, my iPhone light was not enough. Yeah. Those so, last two miles in down there are very runnable. Totally. Even middle of the pack version of me was running down. So totally. that, yeah. oh man, that's sort of a lost opportunity, but I mean, the, it, it is, but I could have, if I hadn't taken my phone, my, my race would have been over. I think I would have, I would have finished, but I think I would have had to have walked that whole section. And so, yeah, it was a lost, a lost opportunity for sure. But because I know how much worse it could have been that I, I grabbed my phone at the last minute, it would have been a disaster. Yeah. I mean, thankfully your phone was charged too. I mean, that's, that's crazy. I mean, that's, that's, uh, fortunate, but then also, I mean, I mean, that's, night running for you, you got to have a backup plan. A lot of people will take a headlamp that has like those two, just like double A, triple A batteries, I think two or three, and then they'll throw in an extra few batteries, but, um, pretty super fast runners. I don't know how many runners actually do that. Um, other people did is what I learned later. Like yeah. everybody, Anthony Costales had an extra headlamp. Abby Levine had an extra headlamp. I was the only one that, and, and I did take an extra, uh, I had like a better headlamp that I was using for the big night section and I had an extra battery for that, but I was, I wanted to save it. And so I thought it would be fine. You know, it's going to take me two hours. I thought there was no way it was, and, and it just wasn't fully charged, which I thought it was. So that's my fault too, for not fully charging my headlamp beforehand. Yeah. I mean, so was this course faster than in previous years, in your opinion, just because there were three females that made the top 10, but your time really stood out as like, I mean, you're, you're running with times that, you know, have withstood for over like nearly a decade. And these are like some of the best female performances of all times. And your overall performance was stellar too. Don't get me wrong there at all. Um, but do you have any comparison? Like, did anyone mention if the course is a little quicker or, or I don't want to take away from your performance at all? Actually the opposite, almost everyone that I've talked to, including the race directors, the course changed, I want to say in 2018. Yep. Um, and they, everybody that I've talked to has said that the course is harder. Um, okay. that makes, it, makes perfect yeah. sense. Just knowing where you're going. Um, but I just right. wasn't sure. I was trying to connect the dots. Yeah, no, I, I, that's what I've heard. I can't, nobody can say for sure, obviously, but that's what I've heard is that this course is harder. And, um, but what's cool to see and what I think is starting to be a trend lately that we're really like seeing maybe at the forefront of is the women are just, we're just improving like at a, at a rapid rate kind of, you know, you look at Western States and how many women were in the top 15, 20 yeah. this race, you know, how fast women ran, you know, Courtney breaking into the top 10 at UTMB. Like, I think that we're just at an exciting time for women's ultra running in general. And so I, I, I credit that mostly to how well women are performing. And then this isn't to, to bash on men. There is like, you know, research on this, but I think women too are kind of uh, more suited to patience and consistency in a race. And I think run rabbit run is a race that rewards that. Like, I think it's so easy to run fast early on. And I'm not saying that some of the top men maybe weren't getting out and over their head, but, but I think there, there is a tendency to do that. And this is a course that lends itself to that. It's easy. It would be easy 
to just be ripping early on um, and then really pay for it, you know, when you're back out there by yourself in the dark. So I think, I think maybe that too, just women being naturally a little bit more patient and, and like more natural at pacing could also that, um, be some indication of why they're up front. I couldn't agree more. I think honestly, that would in itself be a very interesting study to use courses where that is like the prime testable um, component and then comparing male, <laughs> male and female results uh, just based on like, if you go out hard, this is a hard race. Like it's a hard race regardless, <laughs> but you know, right. if you're really stupid at the beginning, you're going to um, end your race early. So just one more question, one or two more on run rabbit run. Did you hallucinate at all? Uh, <laughs> no, I don't think I did. I was ready to, I was like, all right, what's going to happen out there in the dark? I, I don't think so. I think there was definitely times when like, my rationale wasn't like totally there. Um, I'm trying to think I, there was, I kept thinking the moon was someone's headlamp behind me, yeah, but I don't moon. think that was like, yeah, I don't think that was necessarily hallucinating. Um, no, I don't think so. It was more just that I would kind of be in a fog. Like I would just kind of zone out for like a really long time and maybe kind of even forget like what I was doing. Um, I did fall once pretty hard in the night, I think, cause I, I don't think I like dozed off necessarily, but I just was so tired and kind of stopped paying attention. Um, no, I don't, I don't think I hallucinated. I don't think I was up long enough. I was ready for it though. I was ready to have that conversation with myself about what was real and when, what wasn't, I mean, obviously looking for the reflectors that guide the course, there was a couple times when I w at first would think they were like eyes peering at me or something or some kind of wildlife, but, yeah. <laughs> but for the most part, it was pretty uneventful and boring, uh, <laughs> to the point where like, that was the challenge that I was just like, honestly kind of bored and it was quiet and dark and nothing really exciting was going on. I mean, that's a lot of times what happens when you win a race and almost set a course <laughs> record. <laughs> There's not yeah, a huge yeah. amount of stories that go along with it just because it was executed so well. Um, but it gets dark out there. And it, in my book, at least, I have a chapter about being scared to death, like clanking my poles and... Uh, yeah, being concerned that I was being like stalked by something. Um, but I mean, tell me about that finish line. It is hard not to have leg turnover. I've heard I dropped at mile 80 uh, the year I did it. But it seems like that um, that just cruise off a ski slope down into the finish line. It's like if your legs aren't turning over, you're going to like face plant. So you have to be running, essentially. Um Tell me about the finish line. And it's like 107 miles, I want to say. It was, mine's at 103 point something. Um, but yeah, so you come off the, the last climb up to Mount Werner, which is like the high point, I think of like the ski resort. Maybe it's not the highest point, but at least the highest point you run by. And they're like, okay, yeah, you've got six, I think it was 6.2 miles to the finish or something like that. Like five miles on this Jeep road or four by four road and then one mile on single track. So um, yeah, I mean, it's, it was pretty easy to get moving on that section. And I think I just kept telling myself, um, that, that, that Alyssa was catching me. And I, I do that a lot. Like if someone's, if I don't know that someone's near me, I'll just at least tell myself that they are so that I'll keep pushing and not get complacent. Um, but it, it was hard, you know, I was running, like I said, sub eights and, and seven twenty, seven thirty at points. At one point I dipped under seven, not for a full mile, but I was kind of looking at my watch. Um, 
And it's, it's such a nice, gradual, like smooth road that literally, yeah, you just kind of have to move your legs. But I did kind of keep having this thought of like, oh man, like I cannot face plant. Like if I were to like fall right now and like tweak something and then had to literally walk down this road, that's not going to be good. And so there were some times when I almost felt like I was moving fast, but I didn't necessarily feel like I had control of my body. <laughs> like it was just kind of <laughs> like falling downhill. Um, but you know, I, I've never, like I said, I've never had, this is my first big win. And so I never had that feeling of like, I never thought I never let myself think that I had won until I could see the finish line. And so, yeah, the last half mile was just like, I was just smiling so big, like so excited and so cool to see it kind of come together. So you tear um, up at all. Oh yeah, totally. Yeah. And then, uh, but as soon as I crossed, I was like, I got to throw up. So I went and puked for like 20 (laughs) minutes right after I'd been holding it in for a while. But, um, that's the hard part with hundreds too, right? Is like you finish and you feel so terrible that it's like you can't even celebrate for like several days because you're just like barely surviving, it feels like. But um, but no, it, it was it felt like honestly like years in the making. I've been second and third so many times, uh, so many times, like too many times to count and just haven't nailed one yet. So I was definitely, yeah, smiling big and kind of savoring that last half mile and felt like I'd, I'd been working towards that for a long time. I mean, you're, you're making Kyle Pietari happy hearing that, um, <laughs> throwing up at the finish line, but you're right. I mean, you've, you've come in first in a lot of super hard ultras, but they're maybe not the big ones. They're not, you know, the, the renowned hundreds either. And especially like that Leadville second place when you had kind of the rough, 20 into the finish and like you've been so close so many times i mean is it come down to you focusing so much of your efforts outside of the physical training on the mental side of running in that one comment from nick that really made things click for you i mean or was it just not giving up and in pushing i mean because i really do think the mental side of what you're doing now is just amazing like from the last time we talked it's developed not that i knew what i was doing last time we talked but i mean your maturity level and knowledge level is like off the charts um and so i i mean do you think it's mostly mental um for what got you through this kind of breakout performance yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's hard to ignore the fact that experience is invaluable in ultras, particularly hundreds. Um, so, you know, I, I think there was a necessity to some of the experiences that I had to get here. Very few people have a smooth road to success at hundreds. Some do, some kind of crush it, you know, right out of the gates, but there is some, some requirement or price of entry to, to struggle a bit and kind of learn things the hard way. I so I, I'm glad that I had that experience, but totally, I mean, it's interesting because I know the importance of the psychological side and the mental side. I know how important it is. It's what I do all day, every day when I work with athletes, but for some reason I kind of hadn't taken that same approach to myself and it, and it wasn't, I think the issue was that I always knew that I was tough. And so I think that I thought I had it dialed already. Like, well, I'm, I'm tough. Like I'm going to push through anything. I know that I can suffer. But that wasn't what my problem was. My problem was confidence in relaxing early, confidence in taking my time at aid stations, you know, problem solving. There was a lot of other mental skills that 
I wasn't focusing on because I, I felt like I had it, I don't know, locked in because I consider myself a tough person. And, and the reality is you can't just tough your way through a hundred miles. At least I don't think so. Um, so yeah, I think the comment kind of made me realize like, wow, you're missing an opportunity here in the sense that I probably know more about this topic in ultra running than anybody does. You know, I've studied this for three, four years and I'm not even utilizing it to my advantage. Um, and I already know all this information. I already know these things. I already know the research and the science and the data. So it, just a simple mindset switch, uh, in, in my mental approach kind of allowed me to, like I said earlier, like kind of tap into all the work I've done for so long, because it, it, it might sound arrogant, <clears throat> but I would hands down still say that every hundred I've done that I haven't done well in, I still think I was one of the fittest people there, you know, training wise. I think I was one of the fittest people there, but that's in some ways I like saying that because it shows how tough hundreds are in other ways because it didn't matter. It didn't matter that I had trained the way that I had. If I didn't have, you know, these other things dialed in, then it didn't matter. And, uh, it was kind of cool to experience that firsthand because it is something that I believe so much. Um, and now that I've experienced the unfortunate side of it, it's been cool to kind of make the switch and see how much, difference it can make to prioritize yeah this this mental and psychological piece even more i love it i mean and i it's not uncommon that people are really great at something and that's like their profession but then in their personal life they can't do that thing themselves it's very common there's probably some term for it actually um but it's so cool to hear you once again, humbly admit that you couldn't figure this out for yourself. And then you had this moment of realization in this unlocked kind of freeing moment where um, you have this breakthrough performance. And again, I've extensively talked to Michelle Yates about this race and Tommy Rivers hallucinating down into the finish line. Um, I don't think Courtney and I talked about Run Rabbit, Kyle Pietari, all these really, really great runners. Um, and you just showed up and threw down, I think, maybe the best performance or one of the best performances ever um, on this just amazing race. And the biggest breakthrough you had was the mental component. Um, so I'm just really happy for you. I think this leads naturally to how do I learn more from this person that knows so much um, about the mental side of Altern Trails? Um, tell me more about your book. What made you want to write a book on this topic? I remember you working on like a doctoral thesis at one point. I think you even reached out to me at one point. Uh, luckily, you didn't get feedback from me. Uh, <laughs> uh that book would never have gone through and been signed off by a publisher. Um, <laughs> but tell me more about that process because I really respect it. And it's as hard as training for an ultra. You, you're writing basically every day, little by little training every single day for this bigger thing. Oh yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. Writing a book was very much like a, career equivalent of an ultra you know you're working on i think i worked a year and a half on it where i was just yeah some days i was really stoked about it and like super inspired and wanted to just knock out 2000 words or whatever and some days i was like this is the last thing i want to do like this is so hard um but it, it kind of happened i don't know serendip serendipitously i was in grad school so 
I went back to grad school for sports psychology, gosh, probably four, four years ago or so. Um, and it, and it came from being in the sport for so long, like not necessarily in the trail and ultra side, but just, uh, you know, I, I ran competitively on the track and roads for a long time. And over the years I had seen that be something that just wasn't prioritized the way that I felt like it should have been. Um, I had never had access to those resources. You know, I was at a major division one college, didn't have access to that, ran, you know, somewhat professionally or at the elite level afterwards, never had access to that. Uh, and, and I could see when I reflected on my own career, how that I could, I could attribute most of my shortcomings to the psychological and mental piece, not to the physical piece. Um, so yeah, I decided to go back to grad school when I was 32. Um, and I was fortunate Denver university of Denver has like the best program in the country. Um, so went to school there and within my first year there actually was when I ran my first ultra, I ran my first 50 mile race. I guess I'd done a 50 K before, but that's like a baby ultra. So at least in terms of the serious ultra, I ran my first year of grad school at behind the rocks. Um, Courtney, Courtney was there. I ran, I think 30, 35 miles with her and then she smashed me the last 10 miles. But, um, (laughs) but it was in this process of like, I was there too. Were you okay? (laughs) I was doing the baby race. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Um, yeah, it was just like, you know, being in grad school, learning about, this topic, learning about how, you know, I don't know, just learning how much of a role psychology plays in performance while also for the first time being immersed in the sport of ultra running. And it just became, I became obsessed and I still am, you know, I think that something is happening in ultra running that's not happening in any other sport right now. And I'm biased. I admit that, but coming from the running background that I do, I just don't think it's that much about running, you know, in her, in terms of, in the sense of like, Okay, if you're talking about breaking two hours in the marathon for the, you know, breaking two project or something like that, of course, psychology plays a role. Absolutely. But the, some of the most determining factors are like the physiology, like, is this physiologically possible? The training, like you can't tough, you can't tough your way through that. That's not something that like anybody could just attempt. Like it's like, you know, we're talking about the most physically gifted human beings, like in history, whereas hundreds you know, people are now running further than hundreds. I, I just, I think the threshold is lower physically. And, and I don't mean that to say that people like Courtney and Jim Wamsley aren't like absolutely incredible physical athletes. Like, of course they are, but we're not talking about the same physical limitations or physical barriers that maybe we see at more traditional distances of running. Um, totally. and, and so I think, yeah, like, I think if you did something like this is how I, I did do a research project on this. You're right. And, and my thesis or theory was like, okay, if you took the top, the 10, 10 top people in the, let's say the Olympic 10 K final and looked at their training and did all the physiological testing, like VO two max, you know, running economy, all these things, I would, I would guess that their measurements are pretty similar. And in fact, if the winner might have something that suggested that like that would be the winner and, and I could be wrong, but if you took the top 10 people at Western States those measurements are going to be all over the place, right? Like there's, like I said before, I I would say I'm pretty fast compared to some people and I routinely get my butt kicked there. So it's, it's just, that's not the limitation. That's not the limiting factor. Um, So I got kind of obsessed about the psychological piece of ultra running back then, like in grad school. And it was more of a curiosity and wanting to find out more information. But the more I researched, there was, there really wasn't much. There's been a couple uh, research studies um, focused on like psychological 
aspects of like big endurance events, whether it's big cycling events, stage events, whatever, but, but not a lot. And so ultimately I just decided like, I, at first I thought like someone should write a book about this. Like someone should research this and, and write a book about this and provide more information on this. And then that kind of turned into like, Oh, why don't I do it? You know, I feel like I'm qualified to do it and have, you know, had kind of front row seats to a lot of these things. I've been lucky to be in these races at the front of races and maybe seeing, um, seeing Courtney do certain things or seeing people like Claire Gallagher do certain things that, that maybe other people wouldn't have like a front row seat to. And then, you know, having the experience myself obviously is invaluable and then mixed with kind of the, the education and, uh, yeah, just like piece of sports psychology that I, that I have gotten over the last couple of years. So, um, it was, it was a super fun project. It was long, it was hard. Um, but yeah, I really tried to kind of mix together my own experiences as an athlete with, you know, my just general understanding of, uh, human behavior and psychology. But then I guess even the bigger piece was a lot of it was spent doing kind of case studies and, and researching in the context of having super in-depth conversations with these people, you know, like Maggie Guderall and Courtney DeWalter and Jim Walmsley and people that have been leading the sport and kind of, I guess, meshing all that stuff together into a collection of at least what I think are kind of the most necessary uh, mental skills or requirements to succeed at ultras, regardless of whether you're trying to win the race or, you know, finish the race. And I can't wait to check out your book. Um, I I have not purchased it yet. Uh, I I don't want you to either, I don't want you to spoil the book either, but are all these top athletes that are consistently winning big races in ultra running that are a hundred miles, let's say, um, are they doing something parallel mentally? Cause we know that Jim can do 140 mile weeks. Uh, and Courtney doesn't even keep track of how many miles she does, but it's probably reasonably high. Other athletes, Kyle Piatari again comes to mind, just he's running to work and he's running like 930 pace and he's <laughs> consistently top 10 at Western States. He, he should be a case study in himself, but um, <laughs> Harvard lawyer, uh, I mean, so like, are they doing something that you've been able to synthesize down into like, this is consistently what you know, these top athletes are doing from a mental side. Totally. And, and what was so interesting is that they don't have the same language and verbiage for it that I do. You know, they're, they're not going to call what they're doing uh, by the same name that I would, because they don't have, you know, they, they don't. And sometimes it's not even necessarily something that they developed intentionally or consciously. Um, and that's, that's the interesting piece about some of these athletes is I don't think anybody that I talked to actually has had any kind of formal training exposure guidance from from a sports psychologist or anything like that but it's kind of like a byproduct of maybe how I don't know like environment they grew up in like for me for example a lot of the mental skills I have were developed because of my dad was my coach when I was 10 11 12 years old and I was introduced to some of these um concepts like pretty early maybe not again not in the, the in the like the verbiage and the language and as like specifically as I think of it now, but when I look back, I can see what was happening I can see what kind of like uh, mindset was being fostered. So yeah, they don't call it what I do and they may not, 
uh, call it out or call it specifically out as maybe a reason for their success. But when I've, and, and I, and I kind of wrote the book around these conversations, you know, I didn't, I didn't outline the book with what I thought was the case and then interview these people and try and fit it into it. I, I did it the opposite way. I interviewed people first. And then as I continued to hear kind of concepts come up, I kind of wrote the book around those concepts. And yeah, almost nine times out of 10, the things that they were saying, they didn't realize they were saying it, but I could, I could put it into a category of like, this is what this is. And the research backs up exactly what you're saying. Um, and, and Jim is an interesting example because when I talked to him, it, his, his uh, con- comment to me was, yeah, I'll, I'll chat with you, but like, I don't really think I'm that mentally tough. You know, I think I'm just so far better trained than anyone else that I'm just the fittest person on the start line. But my reaction was similar to what you just said. I'm like, but you don't run 140 mile weeks and you don't run 140 mile weeks with 20K over more than that, even without some kind of high tolerance to discomfort. You know, he has developed some kind of uh, callous, like, threshold to discomfort that it is so so strong and so sound that he doesn't even notice it you know that he thinks it's just normal that someone could go out and train the way he does when it's not um so it it was interesting yeah it was interesting to kind of like sift through the things that they were saying um and, and pull out concepts that made sense you know for courtney it was using a technique where she has like a mental filing cabinet of the different scenarios that she's faced in the past and she kind of organizes that in her brain. And when something pops up in a race, she kind of has like a file that she can pull and reference previous experiences and then go through and say, okay, like what worked, what didn't work, what could I try here? And that's absolutely a psychological tactic just, of, you know. And, sorry, that's, sorry that's such a 200 mile mentality. That's crazy. That's that's kind of a similar uh, way. Middle of the pack guys do it too. To- totally. And that's what I say to most I think you might have muted yourself by accident. There you go. Hit to where you are, where you're running 200 mile races, 240 mile races without them. But my intention behind the book is to give more self-awareness and intentionality over them to recognize like, oh, wow, what areas, what areas do I already thrive in? Like, clearly I have developed some mental skills. What are they? And, and, and where are some like, what are some examples of, scenarios where they would be strengths, but then perhaps like more importantly of where my weaknesses, you know, where, where some deficit areas where I'm like, maybe I haven't developed the skills that I need to yet. So it's not, there's no information in there that's earth shattering. That's like, Oh my God, I never thought about this. It's just hopefully designed to build more self-awareness and understanding and understanding why the brain works and understanding why this would be a technique that would work. But then I, I would say the biggest, my biggest goal for the book was the last thing I wanted to do was write a really interesting book where people could read it and say, cool, I'm, I'm so glad that Courtney DeWalter and Jim Walmsley have <laughs> these mental skills dialed in. Like, that's awesome. But like, how the heck do I do that? And so there's a big chunk of the book is uh, geared towards like tools, techniques, exercises for the reader to take away and like kind of put into their own life to develop those skills. So that's, I, I really wanted it to be actionable. I didn't want people to walk away with like an awareness over this concept and why it's important, but maybe not any kind of idea on how to take that into their own training. So that was a major goal that I, that I think I love it. That was going to be my next question. It was like, are these attributes trainable? Like can uh, middle back of the pack guys, can we, you know, utilize, utilize those tactics. So that's really awesome. Awesome. Yeah. 
Um, Sorry. I didn't... No, that's okay. I don't know what just happened. <laughs> no, no. Um, and I'll probably just edit a little bit there. And so, yeah, I appreciate all your time here. I was going to ask like one last question on the book. If you could give kind of a teaser, like one kind of major takeaway and you don't need to be too elaborate on it, but um, what can I look forward to reading about like in something that you get positive feedback on? Um. Yeah, I mean, I I tried to make it interesting in the sense that there's a lot of really cool stories and case studies from both myself and like many of the athletes uh, that I interviewed. So I think that's kind of cool. You know, I was able to get kind of a uh, behind the scenes look at some of these people and and they shared some really cool, just like thought processes and um, ways that they approach races. Um, I guess the biggest thing I would say, this is what gets me so like jazzed about sports psychology is... uh, you know, when we, when we talk about like potential, just physically, genetically, physiologically, like I'm, I'm never going to be, uh, I don't know, a Paula Radcliffe or a, a Kipchoge, right? Like I just don't have that genetic makeup and like, no matter what amount of training and focus I do, like, it's just, there's just a, there's a limit, there's a threshold to it. But what's so exciting about sports psychology and mental performance is nobody has some kind of like resource pool bigger than anybody else. Everybody has the exact same access to these tools and these skills. And then maybe even a step further that makes me so excited is like the results are almost instant. You know, as soon as you can kind of focus on these things and implement them and add them to your, to your schedule. I mean, just look at me even from one race to the next, like the results can be almost instantaneous uh, and just give you so much more, not control, but just, I guess, empowerment over, over your mindset and and how it's working for you instead of against you. So, um, that's my intention with the book is to empower people with that knowledge. Um, what, what's the title of the book again and where can we find it? Uh, it's mental training for ultra running. And I think it's the main place it's being sold is on Amazon. Nice. I am really excited to check it out. Um, you know, it's, it's been just an amazing, experience having interviewed you prior and then finally getting to catch up and catching up at a great time that run rabbit run performance is just amazing but then hearing how sometimes you have to have that failure that kind of makes you look at yourself in the mirror and and then hearing about nick clark unlocking just what you needed to hear how you needed to frame things and uh, it just makes me so excited for you. Um, obviously, the success of your books, incredibly exciting. And I just think you're ready for, for liftoff here. You had your big breakthrough, and I, I can't wait to see uh, what you do in the coming year. And where can we follow you on social media? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really only active on Instagram, um, which is just at Addie Bracey. Awesome. And Addy, if you ever want to collaborate with some average middle-of-the-pack guy from Denver on an article, uh, you know where to find me. But thanks so much for taking your time, and uh, just congratulations on so many great things happening. Thank you. Yeah, it was great to chat with you. That was episode 191. I hope you enjoyed it. Big thank you to Addy for taking so much of her time. And again, congrats on all fronts. And definitely check out her book if you get the opportunity. She's super talented. 
Hopefully I can collaborate with her in the future, but just really enjoyed that conversation. And uh, she is truly a talent within Trail and Ultra and a community builder. So just appreciate having her on the podcast. Big thank you to you Patreon supporters. You guys make this all work. I really enjoy the closed Facebook group conversations. You get sneak peeks before the episodes are released and those are without commercials and just generally we're putting together a patreon first hat so we're going to put together a trucker hat some other things so you guys already know but i just really appreciate you guys who make this all work and big thank you again to exoskin tannery outdoors and the john wayne cancer foundation their grit series most importantly don't forget to enjoy your training see you soon Smell.